Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 11 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. 3. I wait at the usual booth. He's late. The delay gives me a chance to cool down the white-hot anger I feel when I think about the hubris Horn had showing up at the group, faking his way into our confidence. I'm even angrier at myself for allowing it to happen. Why didn't I say anything? Why didn't I call him out? I have nothing to hide from those people, but my silence was a betrayal to them. I allowed a stranger, a pretender, into our midst. Our group is very exclusive, the Dead Kids Club. No one wants to pay the dues to get in. While I contemplate the cream swirling in my heavily sugared coffee, Eddie sits down across from me, an expression of eager excitement playing across his face. Okay, you're never going to believe this. I don't answer, but that doesn't seem to deter him. His enthusiasm blinds him from detecting my dismay. I was up all night researching this. I have a friend at the police department who pulled the vehicle registration info on the people at the meeting. I break my silence. That's a confidential group. I just want to get their names cross-referenced. The group is supposed to be like AA. If people don't want to share their name, address, what they do for a living, they don't. He seems shocked at my dismay. Aren't you curious about what I found? This could be big. I'm indignant. I know what you found. Some of them are parents of children whose killers have died. His expression shifts. He realizes that I've been holding back on him. Why didn't you say anything? He asks. I didn't tell you because it's none of your damn business. What the hell were you thinking? You can't just dress up as a grieving parent and show up at something like that. It took some of those people years to gather the courage to confront the feelings that haunt them day in and day out. What gives you the right to go poking around in their lives? I'm sorry I ever mentioned it to you. The excitement drains from his face. Okay, you're right. I did cross the line, but... Did you think I wouldn't dig around? Do you know how many other killers who put people in that group have died? I knew exactly how many. Three besides Vitelli. Seven, he tells me. What? Four of them have been fairly recent, but I found three others in the last few years. He pulls some photocopied microfilm newspaper articles from a folder. I didn't realize those things still existed. Evidently, there are enough Luddites like Eddie around to justify keeping those gigantic viewers around in some back room of a library somewhere. And the weird thing is, a lot of them happened in the month of July. He rearranges the articles in chronological order like clockwork. I inspect the articles. They are all quick blurbs, stories of people who died unexpectedly, 
and who had been associated with the death of children. I know all the families from the group. One was a malpractice case. The other two were traffic accidents. The doctor and the two drivers died in different manners. One was a stroke. One interrupted a burglary. The last drowned. I know my idea of a killer who picks his victims by way of grieving parents support groups was supposed to be fiction. But that got me curious. And I started checking the papers for any deaths that occurred in July that were associated with any way with people who were involved in the death of children. He pulls out a half a dozen other stories and lays them out dramatically in front of me. Coincidence? I ask. Maybe, but you know how I feel about coincidence. They seem to happen every year within a couple of weeks, all within a 50-mile radius of here, and all the people who died were involved in the death of a child. I look closer, and some are merely obituaries pulled from one local paper or another, cross-referenced with articles from the incidents that tie them to a child's death. The closer I look, the more I can see that in most of the cases, the deaths are not of a suspicious nature. One is a man who was on the board of a school bus manufacturer linked to a faulty vehicle who died of a heart attack. Another is a woman who succumbed to the flu, who was an executive at a pharmaceutical company linked to contaminated chemotherapy drugs. Eddie, I begin, some of these are a bit of a stretch. You can't deny there's a pattern, he responds defensively. I shake my head. I can't see it. My guess is that on any given day in a metropolitan area as dense as this one, that there's going to be someone who dies who can be linked tangentially to the death of a child or children. It's just... He scoops up all the papers into a messy pile, starts to straighten them. You're right, he confesses. I thought I was on to something. Frustrated, he shoves the roughly collated papers into his bag. I had a hypothesis that there was some kind of serial killer out there killing child killers, and I called the evidence to fit. But you're right. There's nothing really here. Nothing anyone would take seriously. I'm better off sticking to fiction. He sighs dejectedly. And I'm sorry, he adds. You're right. I had no business going to your support group. That was wrong of me. My wife really read me the riot act when we got home. She thought we were going to dinner theater. I laugh at the notion. So there is a Mrs. Horn. Mrs. Kenilworth, actually, he corrects. Do any women change their names anymore? It's a dying tradition. Yeah, I know, same thing's happening to journalism. That's why I have the blog. I'm looking for a bestseller under every rock. We sit in silence for a few moments. My anger mellows into pity. Eddie, thanks for apologizing. It really bothered me that you were there. It was a violation. And I felt like I was the one betraying them. Won't happen again. Let me make it up to you. Do you bowl? What? You go bowling. Once in a while. There's a little six-lane dive over on Forest. They make the greasiest french fries in the world. Buck a line on Wednesday nights. My treat. Big spender, I joke. Come on, it'll be fun. Let's hang out without talking about... He trails off, realizing that what he was about to say next wouldn't help the situation. All right, I tell him. He smiles. Really? That's great. Thanks. For what? I have to warn you, I can get very competitive for at least being open to being friends. I roll my eyes and shake my head. Just shut up and buy me some pie. He presses his lips together, then waves a waitress over. I order a slice of the apple pie. He signals with his fingers to make it too. Friends. I like the sound of that. Four. I walk out of the server room, and Roger calls out my name. Busy? he asks. What's up? 
want you to sit in on an interview, one of the candidates that HR sent over for the manager vacancy. I shoot him an inquisitive glance. Just a formality, I assure you. Thought you could do the techno babble song and dance. I suck at that stuff. Okay. I follow him to one of the meeting rooms. A woman, tall, lean, jet black hair tied back, and wearing a smart suit is waiting. She stands when we enter. A warm smile greets us. Hi, she says. Dawn McAllister. Roger makes our introductions while my brain shifts gears after hearing her name. I know that name. I just saw that name somewhere. It's so familiar. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? He pushes her resume in front of me. She offers a practice recitation of her academic and professional history. Most of it goes in one ear and out the other. I look down at the resume. McAllister Systems. Then it clicks. Michael McAllister, the internet mogul, who has a daughter who is marrying the man responsible for the death of Betsy Brown. I was interviewing Justin Berman's fiance for the job that was promised to me. She concludes by summarizing her experience, and my boss asks her why she wants to leave her current position and come work for us. My mind reels. I mean, this has to be a coincidence, but does it get any weirder than this? The woman who is going to marry the man Rebecca wants me to help murder is sitting across from me, touting her impressive skills and her desire to find a more challenging position. The paranoid imp that lives inside my head shouts, She caught you snooping around the internet, digging up dirt on her fiancé. She's come to check you out, find out what you're up to. She knows. I shrug it off. That's absurd. It is just a coincidence. I don't believe in coincidence. Or maybe a sign. But a sign pointing in which direction? Can you fill her in on what we're running in that room you convinced me to spend so much money on? I snap out of my daydream. Of course. I turn to Don. Actually, it's mostly video game systems. He doesn't know the difference. We have huge LAN parties when he goes home. They both laugh. Then I rattle off the latest hardware we're running, the state of our server OS migration, and the legacy systems we've been trying unsuccessfully to get rid of for years. She rattles off a bunch of questions. I answer deftly, expertly, and without hesitation, and debate the pros and cons of moving our core systems to the cloud. She turns to my boss. One last question. Yes? Why in the world are you interviewing me when you have someone so obviously suited for the position sitting right here? Roger smirks, caught. Never mind, she continues. I find myself in the same position all the time. I do thank you for the opportunity to meet you both, though. I sincerely hope we do get the opportunity to work together sometime. She gathers her things and stands. I'll be in touch, my boss offers perfunctorily. She smiles, knowing he won't. For some reason, I can't resist adding one more thing. Ms. McAllister, I just want to say I'm very impressed with the charity work you do. It's nice to meet other professionals who actually make a difference in the real world, as well as our little corner of the cyberverse. God, did I just say cyberverse? What geeky graphic novel did that come out of? Thank you. She fishes the card from her bag. If I'm not going to get a job out of this meeting, maybe I could get a chance to talk you into making a donation? We're having a gathering at my father's house next weekend. Call the Foundation's office. I'll make sure you're on the list, if you're interested. I'll check my schedule, I answer, accepting the card. We'd be happy to lend our support, Roger adds. We all shake hands, and she assures us she can see herself out. You're engaged, and so is she, my boss reminds me. I shake my head as if the thought had never crossed my mind. 
If only he knew the real reason I wanted to find out more about her charity work. The universe is a chronic practical joker. 5. I fill Rebecca in on the interview with Don McAllister and the invitation to the charity event. We have to go, Rebecca insists. It connects us to him. If we really want to do this, it has to be clean. And how will it look if we purposely avoid him right before he's killed? Like any other death in the state that happens every day. Except you just turned down his fiancée for a job. And you flirted with her. Nobody flirted. That part was just Roger being Roger. We're going, she insists. Make the call. She leaves the living room and enters the kitchen, depriving me of another protestation. Just as well, I don't have one. Part of me wants to believe that going there, meeting this guy, will convince her that he is not like the others. He's made something of his life and tried to make others' lives better, too. A truly repentant soul. A scent of garlic and browning Italian sausage evades my senses. It's been a while since Rebecca made my favorite meal, the one I used to beg her for when we were dating. Her homemade cheese ravioli with meat sauce and mozzarella and garlic bruschetta. It was gourmet foreplay. I dig the card out of my wallet and pick up the phone. It rings only once before a friendly receptionist answers and asks what she can do for me. I give her my name and explain that Don McAllister suggested I call about an invitation to her charity event. She puts me on hold. You called, another voice says with a tone of surprise. Don, I ask. I mean, Ms. McAllister? Yes, nice to speak to you again, she says. And Don is fine. Well, when I mentioned your invitation to my... I hesitate saying the word. Fiance, she insisted we go. We're both big believers in your cause, and now we have a chance to be big supporters as well. She laughs. I know how much a computer guy makes, so don't think I'll be shaking you down for some enormous check. I must confess I do have an ulterior motive. Oh? My father's going to be there, and he'll talk anyone's ear off about the latest technology and how he would have done it. I'm hoping you might be the designated tech geek and keep him occupied. Are you kidding? It'd be an honor. I follow him online. Perfect. Is your fiancé in IT? No, real estate. Well, I know I have some guests who would catch your interest, too. I'll make sure the details get emailed to you. So glad you called. See you there. Thank you, I say. Goodbye. Bye. I hold on till I hear the connection break. God, I think to myself. It's a good thing Roger didn't hear that conversation. The accusations of flirting would be renewed with an elevated vigor. Rebecca pokes her head in from the kitchen. Are we all set? Yep, I answer, all set. She crosses toward me, the scent of her cooking thick around her, and gives me a garlic-flavored kiss, then smiles lustfully and returns to the kitchen, humming. If nothing else, doing what Rebecca wanted did kickstart our sex life. I flip open my laptop and Google Michael McAllister, Dawn's father. I haven't read his blog or followed him on Twitter, and was relieved to find that he did indeed have an online presence I could connect with, so my boast would not be unveiled as the little white lie that it was. Michael McAllister had stepped down from being CEO of his namesake company several years before, but maintained a high profile in the industry. I'd seen him on various talk shows, and he'd pop up as an expert on the radio opining from time to time on the latest iPhone, or changes in Facebook's terms of service, or what went wrong with the last election. I figured if I was going to pass myself as a Michael McAllister aficionado, I would need to get up to speed on his latest proclamations and evangelisms. I lose myself in reading his online posts. 
I find I agree with him with a great many of his positions, and am growing eager with genuine excitement at the opportunity to meet him. Sometime later, Rebecca sets the table with the feast that she knows will get me to do anything for her. I guiltlessly sit down at the table and devour more of it than I should have been able to. And after all that, there's blueberry cheesecake for dessert. I stare at it for a moment, wishing I had paced myself a little better on the ravioli and bruschetta. No dessert? Rebecca asks. I stifle a burp. It looks delicious, but I don't know if I have room for it just now. Rebecca gets up from her spot across the table, walks over, and sits on my lap, then draws a finger through the gooey blueberry topping and licks the bit that threatens to run down her hand. She demonstrates how good it tastes with an orgasmic moan and holds her finger in front of my mouth. I part my lips and she holds her finger a little closer, forcing me to go the rest of the way myself. I do so and receive my sweet, fresh, juicy reward. Rebecca pulls her finger free, then dips it into the cheesecake again, deeper this time to get a scoop of the cheesy part as well. But instead of offering it to me, she smears it between her breasts and licks the remainder off her finger. I don't hesitate to remove the delicious mess from her chest, then lick her neck, then nibble an earlobe, and finally share a blueberry cheesecake-flavored kiss. Want to go into the bedroom and work up an appetite? She asks. I nod enthusiastically. She slides off my lap and leads the way to the bedroom. Wait, I say, then turn back to the table, grab the dessert, and follow Rebecca with the cheesecake in hand. 6. The pins erupt with thunder and a furious explosion of white and red as the ebony ball smashes into their midst. Eddie spins around, doing a move he must have copied from an old Michael Jackson video, then licks the tip of his finger and marks an X in the air. I roll my eyes, having endured his strike dance several times already. Fortunately, he didn't have one for spares. He slides behind the scorer's desk, pencils in the strike, and tallies up the score for the previous frames. This place is perfect for his Luddite sensibilities. No fancy electronic scoring, no light shows accompanying blaring pop music, just a little six-lane bowling alley tucked away between a cigar shop and a cobbler. I must have driven by this place hundreds of times and never noticed it. You're up! Eddie reminds me. I nod and cross to the lane, glancing down at the score sheet which shows how definitively I am being beaten. I pick up the 16-pound ball that had holes big enough for my fat knuckles and do my best to guide it down the center of the waxed lane toward the triangle of pins. The ball veers quickly off to the side, giving them a glancing blow, but a friendly rebound knocks down more pins than I deserve. Eddie laughs. You need a few more beers in you. You're too tense. I haven't bowled in probably ten years. Yeah, yeah, it was five years ago last game. He signals the bartender slash shoe manager slash cashier to bring over two more beers. I make a half-hearted attempt at the spear and make it. I turn to Eddie, lick my finger, and draw a slash in the air. Mathematically impossible for you to catch up at this point, he boasts. And I thought I was competitive. Yeah, I know, it's a fault. Melissa won't even play cards with me anymore. The bartender drops the two beers in the cup holders behind the seats that at some point in the past were filled with waiting bowlers, then departs without a word. Two silent old men at the bar watch baseball on the black and white TV. How many of those do you see anymore? And a single bowler in the far lane racks up strike after strike with a gleaming translucent ball. The embroidery on his worn shirt names him Freddy. The bell hanging from the front door tinkles. Two men in dark suit jackets enter. They look around, and their heavy-lidded eyes settle on me and Eddie for a moment. Then they move to the bar and drop onto the stools. 
Eddie glances over his shoulder and watches them for a moment, then gives his ball a half-hearted toss down the alley, creating a split. I tease him for his uncharacteristically poor attempt. He takes a seat next to me and tightens his laces while he speaks in a low whisper. Did you see those two guys who just walked in? I reach behind me for my beer, catching a glimpse at the newcomers. Friends of yours? They're from Vitaly's crew. I cast a quick, inconspicuous glance in their direction. You sure? I've got their mugshots tacked up on my office wall. What are they doing here? I don't know. It's not the typical place they'd shake down. Maybe they like the bowl. And suits? Maybe they're following you. You did catch Tony Vitale's interest. Maybe Mikey Manzanetti changed his mind about you having the balls to take out his kid. Yeah, 16 pounders. Juan doesn't laugh. Should I be scared? Maybe I should be. They could just as easily have taken offense at something on my website. You know, I've been meaning to ask you. You don't seem very tech-savvy. The same college kid who set up my email address to print messages on my fax machine has it so I can send typewritten pages to a blog post. The system he describes catches my interest for a moment, and I want to dig further, but my focus returns to the member of Tony Vitale's crew, who decided to drop in for a beer at the bowling alley Eddie and I just happened to be killing a few hours at. You really think he had a change of heart? I ask nervously. No, you'd be dead if that was the case. Good to know. So, what do we do? Well, we can finish our line and pretend they're not here, or we can just call it a night, Eddie suggests. I think about it. Vitaly's goons make me nervous. Let's just get out of here, I say. I pull out a $20 bill and clip it to the score sheet, then hurriedly change my shoes and flee with Eddie under the watchful eyes of the mobsters. 7. I drop off Eddie at his apartment building, then continue on to my place. A large, menacing SUV follows me. Even in the dark, I can recognize the driver and passenger in my rearview mirror as the two goons that were in the bowling alley. No doubt that they were there on my behalf now. I rev at my apartment building and pull into the parking garage. The SUV takes up a position across the street. It is certainly going to be interesting trying to kill Berman under the watchful eye of the mob. 8. Rebecca listens intently as I tell her about my run-in with Vitaly's men. So, she begins, what does it mean? They can't follow us the rest of our lives. They'll give up after a while, and if they don't, we'll find a way around it. Maybe Mikey's convinced Tony Vitale to give us another look. Maybe Rebecca was more careless than she thought with Lorenzo. Geez, paranoid much? She asks, mockingly. It's not paranoia if the mob is actually following you, I reply. Whatever. I'm not going to live my life like everything I do is going to tip off Manzanetti, or the police, or Vitale, or heaven forbid upset Barb Brown. She grabs her phone and jacket and heads for the door. I'm going to Amy's. She's picking out nursery stuff, and I need a distraction from your drama. She looks at me fiercely. And don't think you're going to use this as an excuse to let Berman off the hook. You can think of a way to get around Vitaly's guys, and we're going to that charity thing. She leaves abruptly, stealing any chance for me to respond. 9. Barb is not at the group meeting. Brian does his best to follow the format. There are no new members, so that makes things easier for him, and some of the other regulars help things move along. Everyone is eager to wrap things up, and they break into smaller groups. Brian ends up on his own, rearranging things at the refreshments table. I approach him. Need a hand? He smiles when he sees me. 
Yeah, I'm kind of lost here. I'm not used to doing this without her. I hope she's feeling better soon. I'm not sure about that. What do you mean? We've been arguing a lot lately. It's like the last ten years have all come crashing down on us at once. I really bought into this whole thing at the beginning. Sharing feelings, unloading grief, remembering the good stuff. You guys do a lot of good, I remind him. Yeah, well, nothing is as therapeutic as seeing your child's killer get what they deserve, huh? There was a disturbing tone to his voice. A man on the edge. I'm sorry. It's not your fault, he says. I'm happy for you and Rebecca. I really am. For you guys and all the other parents who have gotten some resolution over the years, I'm jealous as hell, and to be honest, it's been driving a wedge between me and Barb. If there's anything, he cuts me off. Anything you can do? He chuckles. <laughs> yeah, how about knocking off Justin Berman? The words hang in the air between us. Brian wipes a tear from his cheek. I shouldn't be dumping this on you. Brian, I put a hand on his shoulder. That is exactly what you should be doing. That's what you and Barb have created here, an outlet that we all need. He nods. I know, I know. I can't imagine going on for as long as you guys have. Brian shrugs. Well, if you want to see how it wears you down, just look at old Harold. And he does just that. I do too. Old Harold sits in his corner, knitting his fingers together as if weaving his unspoken grief into an invisible shroud. What is his story? I ask. Brian shrugs. I've heard stories about his story, but nothing actually from him, he confesses. You up for a drink? 10. I give the car keys to Rebecca and tell her that I'm going to get a drink with Brian. She's curious, but just accepts the keys and warns me not to stay out too late, knowing I'll fill her in when I get home. We go to a little neighborhood place where the jukebox isn't too loud, and no one complains if someone lights up a cigar. Brian and the barkeeper are on a first-name basis, and Brian's first drink is delivered without him even ordering it. The bartender looks to me, and I tell him I'll have the same. Brian empties his glass before he starts the story. Harold has us all beat, he begins. Not only lost a son, but a daughter-in-law and two grandchildren. They were getting ready to go on a summer vacation. A young family. The son and his wife were in their mid-twenties, and the kids were a year apart, but both still in preschool. The second-hand minivan they had broke down, blown transmission or something. It would have taken more than a week to fix it, even if they had the money for it, so instead Harold offered them the use of his car. One of those big old Mercuries. Not quite as family-friendly, but it'd get them to the lakeside cottage they'd rented, and they could enjoy their trip. They never made it to their destination. I don't know the exact details of what happened, except that there was some sort of accident on the tollway, and the car caught on fire. The gas tank exploded. The car was filled with a fireball that killed them all. Brian downs a second drink in one swallow and waves to the bartender for another. When was this? Over twenty years ago, I think. Like I said, Harold is an old-timer. Before Barb and I started this group, we attended another one, quite a distance away. Unfortunately, there were enough parents in this area that it made sense to start a local group. Harold was one of the members that made the move. Did they ever determine whose fault it was? I don't know. I heard the story from a leader of that old group. I don't know if it was just a sleep-deprived trucker or a wrong-way driver or just a horrible accident. When I think about Betsy and the way she died, I thank God that she was killed quickly. I can't imagine how hard it would be to know that her last moments were spent in such agony. Cooper's last moments were like that, but he deserved it. And you can understand why Harold never shares. 
He must blame himself to some degree. It was all a series of unfortunate events. Wrong place, wrong time. Just like Nick on that part of the sidewalk when Natalie ran him down. But I get it. He must tell himself that if he hadn't loaned them his car, or if he had driven them himself, or if he had rented them a safer vehicle, or any of a hundred things that could have changed what happened, he'll never be able to forgive himself. In one moment, he lost two generations, the future of his family. Is he married? Is there a Mrs. Old Harold? I ask. He's a widower. She passed away before the accident. What does he do for a living? Brian shrugs. I suspect he's retired now. Before that, I have no idea. We sit in silence for a while. I nurse my drink while Brian starts on his fourth. Thanks, he says, patting my wrist. It helps to tell that story out loud for some reason. I guess it reminds me that as deep in hell as I am, you can always go deeper. If there is a hell, you know Vitaly and the others are burning in torment a hundred times worse than what we're going through. Brian lets out a short laugh. Right. He raises his glass in a toast. To hell. May it forever torment the monsters who took our children. Then he adds, And may Justin Berman join them before I die. Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanddae.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.